Good morning. Um, this is the last day, right? Uh, they have to bring it all today. Maybe uh, you haven't gotten packed a box yet. You're thinking about it. You're wondering. Well, um, there are, I think, like six boxes over on the Spanish side in the foyer. If uh, you haven't packed a box yet, you can go over there. Not right now. You've got to wait till after the service. You can go and grab yourself a box, pack it up, bring it back, and um, Lord willing, tomorrow, uh, pack all it up and send it on to reach kids with the gospel. That's, that's exciting. We're in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be looking at verses 57 through 75. Matthew chapter 26, 57 through 75, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of God says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered it and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimonies against Jesus so that it might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do, uh, do you not answer? Well, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, therefore, that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you, uh, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat on his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, uh, who is the one who hit you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it uh, with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a roaster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before the roaster crows, You will uh, deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's, it's a difficult text to understand and to apply. 
I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that your spirit would use your word to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. I pray that we will see this text and see those things in our lives that need to change. Father, for some here, that change will be putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. For others, uh, they have maybe not been walking as close with you, Father. They haven't been being transformed into the image of Christ. They've been resisting that. And Father, there needs to be a repentance of that. And I pray as we look at this text that we can apply it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been in an unjust trial? You've been accused of something, but uh, you're innocent. You didn't do it. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you are married. You took the last cookie. I do not take the last cookie. You did take the last cookie. And then certain statements like, you always take the last cookie start to appear. Uh, Words like, you always, usually never come with, you always serve me so wonderfully, you always love me, you are always dedicated. It's always with a negative, isn't it? You always do this. With kids, you can pass the blame, you know. If you're an empty nester, I'm sorry, it's back on you. But you know what it's like. You're, You're accused and you're guilty Maybe you even have crumbs around your mouth, but you say you did not do it. Now, as we've been looking at this text, and we've been seeing in the previous section, we saw this kind of large crowd of people coming up to Jesus, and they have swords, and they have clubs, and they are wanting to arrest Jesus, as if he were a robber, as if he had been doing uh, terrible things, and that they need all these weapons. They come to him. Now, what's interesting is that they've come to him at night and they want to take him. They're scared of what the multitude will do if they were to arrest him right there in the temple courtyard, for example. Like right after he gets done healing somebody, they go and say, all right, that's enough. No more healing. And they take him away. The crowd would go up in an uproar, but they've decided to choose their time to go at night and they've arrested him. And what we're going to be looking at is that Jesus is going to be tried and denied, and he will suffer as the suffering servant of God. What I think this text will be presenting to us is that Christians must look past their present pain and difficulty and focus their gaze on the future hope in Christ. Now, you say, I'm not going through any pain, and I'm not going through any suffering. That's fine. That's that's fantastic. Praise the Lord for that you will probably be going through some type of pain or suffering uh, in a short while. I'm not trying to be a prophet. It's just we live in a fallen world. And uh, living in a fallen world, uh, fallen things happen. So uh, what we see is that Christians must look past the present hurt and focus their gaze on the hope, on the future hope in Christ. We do this by putting ourselves uh, on the side of Christ. Putting ourselves on the side of Christ. We see in verse 57, it says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. That that word seize has this idea of um, grabbing hold of, uh, of taking control of something, to to steer something. And when we start thinking about this fact that 
there is a mob of people who have seized, who are controlling Jesus. It, it creates a little bit of a conundrum for us. How, how are we to understand this? Is it really the crowd that's controlling? Uh, or is God controlling the crowd that's controlling Jesus? Uh, how are we to understand that uh, Jesus is being controlled? And, and we see this, and um, we, we could try to understand it in a couple different ways. As we think about this and this crime that they're going to be committing, here's an innocent man, and he's going to be tried in a terrible way. Is Jesus in control? Is God in control of this situation? Or is the mob? Are the ones that seized him, are they in control? Well, you might be able to say that uh, maybe God is not really in control. Maybe he's been saying all this stuff about Son of Man, but he's really not the Son of Man. Maybe he's not in control. Or others might say, well, he, he might be in control. He might be powerful enough to be in control. But, but God is a cruel God. Sees an innocent man about to be tried, and he does nothing. Doesn't help him at all. Doesn't rescue him. No, sends no angels. Nothing. And as we think about problems, it might be easy to distance ourselves from Jesus' problem and what's going on to him but when the problem happens to us, we might not verbalize these thoughts about God, but sometimes we might start thinking that maybe God is not all-powerful. Or if he is all-powerful, he's definitely not a good God. He's a cruel God who would allow me to go through this situation. I think this text presents a different scenario about God. God is in control. He's sovereignly allowing pain for a greater purpose, which will bring him glory. Now, if, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we start to analyze the dialogue that happened between the serpent and Eve, on some level, Eve got in her mind that God was not a good God. That, sure, he had given the garden, and, and they had all these wonderful things, and yeah, they could eat of all the fruits, they could eat all the everything, except for one thing. And it seems like God wasn't really a good God. He was holding back from them. I mean, a good God would have given everything. Yet they failed to realize that being withhold that knowledge was the good thing. She distrusted that God was a good God. And she took of the fruit, ate it, and gave it to her spouse. Since then, and even before the foundations of the world, God has a plan to show that he is a good God. And that gets presented through the person of Jesus Christ, who will die and take on our sin to show how good of a God he is. So he is a good God. He's not a cruel God. Maybe he's not in control. Well, there's just too many narratives in the text to say that he's not in control. You remember in Matthew chapter 8, 1 through 4, there was that leper guy, and he... He, uh, he's all with leprosy, and he comes up to Jesus, and, and uh, he says uh, he wants to be healed. And Jesus says, well, go over there to that CVS and get this cream and put it on, and, and maybe a little bit of powder. And, and No, he didn't do that. He heals them, and immediately the guy's healed. Over in Matthew 8, uh, 5 through 13, that centurion who's got the, the servant, and uh, he goes up to Jesus and he says, uh, uh, my servant is, is about to die. 
And Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll go. He says, no, 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 no. And he says, I know how these things work. I'm a man of authority. I tell my servant, go, and he goes. And I say, come, and he comes. And all you need to do is say the word. Jesus doesn't look at anything. He doesn't ask for an address. He says, he says that he's surprised by his faith. only person he says that he's surprised by their faith, and it's a Gentile. He's surprised by their faith, and he heals the servant. That's an incredible power. So we see that he is a good God. He's going to take on our sins. He is powerful. So what do we understand from this? God is all-powerful, and he's just, but he's going to allow this crowd to crucify, to judge Jesus for a greater good, which will be for our salvation. And that's how God will work. He'll, he'll bring glory to him, and it'll be for our good. Now, if you apply it to your own life, and you think about your own situation, maybe difficulties that you're going through, you say, how is my suffering going to help anybody? I'm miserable. I'm making my family miserable. Making the church miserable. I don't know. People at the work, miserable. But God can work it if we keep our eyes on him rather than looking at our situation. Now, as we see him going through here, God is using this for a purpose. We see that they're at Caiaphas' house. There's the high priest. There's the scribes, the elders. They're all gathered together. And then all of a sudden, Matthew introduces Peter to us. And lo and behold, he uses a word. Peter was following him. Well, that's incredible. I mean, the scene that we had before in the previous pericope, we saw that uh, Peter takes off. They all took off running. But it seems like as they took off running, Peter somehow thought about his, his actions and repented, turned around and started going after Jesus. He's following after him. It's, it's the same word that's used as Jesus invited his disciples to follow him. It's used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, Matthew 8, 22. It's used in Matthew 9, 9 when, when there's uh, Matthew, he's collecting taxes and he says, follow me. And, and he gets up and he starts following Jesus. It's the act of being a disciple. It's the word that Matthew uses for what, Jesus, what Peter's doing to Jesus. He's going to go and follow him. You think, wow, this is fantastic. He, he took off running, but he's repented until we keep on reading that he's following him at a distance. How, how far of a distance? Well, it doesn't say. But it's far enough of a distance that you can still consider it as being following him, but still have your own safety, still have your own security. And it says he goes as far as, which is a preposition, to mark the distance to the courtyard. There he is in the courtyard of the high priest, and entered, and he sat down. Now, the next preposition is really important, because it says, with. Now, who did he go sit with? Well, he repented. He, he must have gone and, and followed after Jesus and sat down with Jesus, about to be tried. He, he's changed his attitude. He saw that running away was fleeting was not the correct thing to do, so he went back over there and started following Jesus, entered into the court, and, and he, he sits down with, oh, it says the officers. It doesn't say with Jesus. That, that with is really important. Like, for example, 
if uh, you see your car with somebody that you don't know driving down the road, that's not a good scenario, right? It's got stolen. Or you see your spouse with another person. You're like, what's going on there? That's no bueno, right? This here, he is with the officers. Why is he not with Jesus? Because he's sitting there to see the outcome. That's the telos. The outcome of what? To see how what is going to end. How Jesus is going to end? Jesus is not going to end. What is he waiting to see? What is he thinking going to happen? Now, as we look at this, he's there sitting down. We have to put ourselves on Christ's side, following Christ very closely. Peter is following Christ, but he's doing it at a distance. He's doing it at a safe distance. He's doing it at a distance that he feels comfortable with, that he's in control of. He's trying to get to Jesus, but he's doing it at a distance. As we see this, he really needs to be there beside Jesus. But the thing is, to go beside Jesus it involves a certain amount of danger. See, as you get closer and closer to Jesus, the more and more your life will be uh, dangerous. There will be situations that arise. There will be conflict as you get closer and closer. I don't know if you ever saw the cartoon of Spider-Man, but whenever danger came, his little spidey senses went off. And, and Peter can feel the danger. So he's only willing to go all the way to the courtyard. He's not willing to go any further. The other thing that uh, happens when you follow Jesus is that it gets a little bit lonely. Who's in there being tried with Jesus? Well, it's just Jesus. There's no crowd in there with him. Uh, as, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it's been granted to you to believe, and not only to believe, but also to suffer. And as people follow after Christ, there's going to be a suffering, but there's also going to be a loneliness. See, as you align your life with Christ's life, you'll see other Christians don't do that. You'll see other Christians spend their money on other stuff, and you'll use your money to further Christ's work, Christ's mission, Christ's church. You'll see that other people are involved in certain activities, and there's nothing wrong with those certain activities, but because you want to be involved in Christ, you'll get away from that, and it'll be rather lonely. Following Christ very closely, the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth to have that loneliness? Is it worth to going through? And that all depends on what your value of God is. If he's a very small God, then no, it's not worth it at all. You might, might as well find something better and bigger to go follow after. But if you study through God's word and you see who he is, and you understand who he is, you say, yes, it's worth it. It doesn't matter if I'm all by myself. Yes, it's worth it to follow after him, to be there. The other thing that we see of Peter, and we think about this following Christ, is we should follow Christ exclusively. Exclusively. Uh, many times, as we're following Christ, we, uh, we show our cards about certain things. Our political opinions, our climate control, cli not climate control, climate crisis, are pandemic opinions. And many times, 
People know where we stand politically, on the climate, on the pandemic, but they have no idea about the Christ we serve. We, we've got tattooed our position, and people see it, but they really don't know if we're really following Christ because we, we just don't talk about that. That just doesn't come up. To be on the side of God is to follow God. It, be there close to Him. Not at a distance, whatever is safe for me, but to be there with them. Not to see what the outcome would be. God is God. He's not on any side. We get on God's side. God doesn't get on our side. We get on His side. Now, as we see this, Peter, he, he starts off well, but then he doesn't go all the way. Another thing we see here is that we need to put our eyes on Christ's future hope. Put our eyes on Christ's future hope. As you see the development of verses 59 through 68, the, the priest, the high priest, Caiaphas, he's trying to get uh, witnesses, false witnesses, to come and, and give a testimony. In the Jewish court, you needed at least uh, two, uh, preferably three, more people that could uh, say what the person has done wrong. And with the testimony of two or three, it was established. But they're not looking for Jesus to just have done something wrong. They need something that they'll be able to condemn him to death. I mean, really get him for death. So people are coming and they're saying stuff, but one person said he did this, and they can't find another person that can also say he did that. Then they find another person, and he says, well, this person. And finally, they get two people that say the same story, that Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple and then raise it up in three days. Now, if you were to do a search of that phrase in the New Testament, you won't find that phrase appear in anywhere else than right here at the mouths of these two witnesses. So exactly word for word, Jesus never said this. He, he didn't. But uh, they've got two people that are saying the same thing. And the high priest is, I mean, he is happy. He is thrilled. This is what he's been looking for, something that, that he could get Jesus on. And so he asked him to answer, but we see that Jesus keeps silent. It's like he's the suffering servant. He's like the paschal lamb on its way to being slaughtered. He doesn't answer. So then he, he puts him under oath of God to, to tell are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Now, the Christ is uh, the Messiah, the Messiah who was going to come. It was prophesied certain things that the Messiah was going to do. Uh, but also the Son of God. I don't think in uh, like uh, John's theology of only begotten of the Son, uh, of the Father, uh, think more in terms of, uh, of Matthew. Has, Matthew has been presenting Jesus as, as king. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Son of God, like, for example, David and the other kings were considered the Son of God. Uh, so here this phrase is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus' re response to him is, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he agrees with it, 
And then he tells them this, uh, this terminology which Jesus really likes in Matthew, which is the title of the Son of Man. This title comes from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is having a vision, and in this vision he sees these different beasts, the different kingdoms that come. And they pop up, and then they come down, and they come up. And finally, there's the Ancient of Days, and there's this one as the Son of Man. He appears, and to him is given all authority, all power, and uh, he establishes a rule. And it's a forever kingdom. That's what he does. He establishes this. Uh, as they, he says this, he says, uh, I will tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man. Now, how are we supposed to understand that you will see? Uh, some say, well, this Son of Man could really be interpreted as uh, the point when Jesus ascended. Uh, so there was a whole bunch of witnesses there, and uh, he uh, ascended, and so now he's the Son of Man in the clouds. But there's a problem with that, isn't it? Uh, because when he was ascending, he was going, and here it says coming. Maybe Jesus didn't know the difference between coming and going. Well, that would be absurd. That, that would be really silly that he wouldn't know the difference between coming and going. So it can't be his ascension. It has to be a, a future time. Now, you might want to put this at a different place than I. You might have a certain interpretation of where this place is, but there's something that's going on in this text that you have to, we have to see. And that is that under pressure of a trial, an unjust trial, unfair trial, Jesus is looking forward in the future. He's not looking at his present circumstance. Regardless if you want to put this in the millennium, where you want to put it, uh, before the millennium, after the millennium, etc., 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 wherever you want to put it, at the end of the day, Jesus is not looking at his present difficulty. He's looking to the future. And that's what's going to get him through all this. He's looking to the future. Now, what's the reply of the high priest? Well, they're just thrilled about this. <laughs> they are thrilled in the bad way. He tears his rose. He says it's blasphemy. Do, do we need any other witnesses? Of course not. This is enough to have him killed. They're so thrilled that he finally said something like this. Now, when we put our eyes on Christ's future hope, we have to understand that we're going to go through real unjust trials. Was this a real trial? Yeah, there's real people in front of them. Was it a just trial? No, it wasn't. It was not. They're getting false witness after false witness after false witness. Anybody that will say anything, they're trying to get all these people. And maybe you've been in a situation when, where everything's stacked up against you. And you say, this is not fair. But it's still happening. It's still happening in your life. This isn't right. But you still feel the pressure of it. Now, the thing that this shows is that Jesus knows exactly how you're feeling when you're going through those types of situations. He's not clueless about what it's like to be in a situation where it's not just, it's not right, but you're still being accused. You're still going through the difficulty. What Jesus does at this point is that he looks to the future. He doesn't look at the present circumstance. He, he looks to how things are going to change and how it's going to change. He's going to be the judge, and they're going to be the ones judged. Is it fair right now? No, but it will be fair one day when Christ will be the judge over them. It's the future hope of a future king 
and being the subjects of that king. Now, we also see that uh, we have to put our hope in Christ's words. Put our hope in Christ's words. And that's this last section where Peter is going to deny uh, Jesus. We see in this text, as we read it, that first of all, if we could imagine the courtyard, that Peter's in the courtyard, he's here and he's, I don't know what he's doing, he's doing something, who knows what. Um, he's there and all of a sudden a girl comes up to him and says, you were with Jesus, uh, Galilee. And his response to the little girl is, no, he denies it, not me. And then he, he moves over to the gateway, and there at the gateway, he's kind of standing there, and now a lady, not, not a young girl, but a lady comes up to him and says, hey, uh, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. He says, no. And he, he, he swears. Now, Peter was there present when, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going through and saying, not to swear by heaven or earth, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. But, but that was then, right? I mean, now it's dealing with his, his real life situation. You don't have to obey those things when it's a real life death situation, right? Of course not. You just throw those things back and, and you gotta, you got to preserve your life. So he swears, I don't know the guy. He's there and I guess he must have started getting talking with people and so forth. They, they start to recognize his accent. And they say, you're not from here. You're from up north in Galilee. He says, you were with, with Jesus, weren't you? And then it's not the best moment he has. He starts to swear, curse. He says, I don't know him. And instantly, the rooster crows. Sounds have a way of bringing back memories, don't they? I uh, one time was on a, uh, our, our youth group from our church there in Puerto Vallas, Venezuela, where we were on our way to a camp in Rio Chico. It's, it's on the way to Caracas, but before you get to Caracas, about two hours away, you go off towards the coast. And, and there was a camp, a Word of Life camp there in Rio Chico, Venezuela. And uh, we hired this bus driver to take us. We had uh, filled up, a, I think it was 34-seater, and uh, he was driving us up there. He had two cassette tapes, just two. This was back in 94-ish or 95. He had two cassette tapes. One was of Ana Gabriel, and the other one was Juan Luis Guerra. All night long as we did that trip, he went back and forth between two cassette tapes. Now, I don't tend to hear those songs very often when I'm out and about, but when I do, it flashes back being on that bus, listening to the guy blaring the music as he's just driving all night long, listening to Ana Gabriel and Juan Luis Guerra. It, it, each time I hear it, it comes, the, the thoughts, the memory, the, the windows open, the sound, everything comes back right to me. As soon as the roast, rooster crowed, it came right back to Peter, Jesus' words, which are, before the roaster crows, you will deny me three times. It says that he went out and wept bitterly. Bitterly. It's, 
It's an interesting thing as we see this. There he is. He's, he's weeping. How do you feel about Jesus right now? What Do you feel sorry for him? Do you feel maybe superior? Like I would have never, never done that to Jesus. Do you think Peter's repentant? You say, well, of course he's repentant. Look, he's there weeping bitterly. Is that how we understand repentance? If you notice his actions, he started off in the courtyard, and then he denies and he comes to the gateway. And then at the gateway, it says he went out and wept bitterly. With each step, he takes further and further away from Jesus. While he is weeping bitterly, he's not repenting and going into Jesus and saying, I'm sorry, I'm here with him. There is no repentance. There's, I want to watch out for my own life. And he takes off. And you're saying, boy, you're really being really hard on Peter. Well, you have to understand what's happening here is that he, if he's going to get restored, it won't be because tomorrow he'll do better. It's not going to be because of that. The only restoration will happen when he remembers again where Jesus said, I am going to meet you in Galilee. John records the events. It's an incredible event. I would encourage you to go read the last chapter of John. It's amazing how Jesus restores him. How does he get restored? By promising to be better the next day? He has to go back to what Jesus said. That's the only way to get restored. There is no, no future hope in, in promising things that I'm going to be better next time. There's no hope in, in crying and blubbering. You can cry and blubber all you want. It doesn't do anything. It's going back to what Jesus said and applying that to his life. And he goes up to Galilee. He's not waiting on him. He goes fishing. And still Jesus calls out to him. Where is their hope? It's hope in Christ's words. What hope do you have? What hope does your marriage have? What hope does our church have? It's in Christ's words. It's the only hope there is. What hope is there to change? It's in Christ's words. What hope is there in our nation? It's in Christ's words. It's in Him who there's life. Now, as we end this part, we have to remember that Christ is the one who's going to restore. He restored Peter, and it's Christ who will restore you. Maybe you failed, maybe you're about to fail, but it's Christ who restores people. Christians must look past their present hurt and focus their gaze on the future hope in Christ. We do this by uh, putting ourselves on Christ's side. We do this by putting our eyes on Christ's future hope, and we do this by putting our hope in Christ's words. But maybe you can't do that because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You're still hoping that you're going to be better tomorrow. I mean, last week you blew it, but and the week before you blew it, and the week before that, but this week you're going to do it. You're going to be better. No, there's nothing you can do in yourself. It's all Christ's work. It's all what he did on the cross. It's putting your faith in that. It's believing in his death to save you. Maybe you are saved, but, but you're not there with, with Christ. You're following him, but it, it's at a distance. 
It's, it's at that distance that you feel comfortable with. You're not right there beside them. It's, it's kind of that thing where you can kind of still have the little emblem, you know, put it on your lapel, but not you're not right there. And that also requires a repentance, a turning to Christ. Not to just go and blubber and cry, but to change your actions and, and put your life in line with what Christ says in His Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this passage. I thank You that You are in sovereign control of all things. Even when mean people are doing them injustice, You are still sovereign control, working out Your purposes for Your glory and for our good. Father, I pray as we consider our lives, maybe we've been following, but it's been at a distance. And I pray that we can repent of that and follow, follow you with all our hearts. Father, I, I pray for those who aren't saved, that they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that today can be that day where they take that step of faith and put their faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.